All right, threes through fives. You guys can meet in the back. I think Miss Sarah is headed that way now. And then our elementary age, you guys can kind of come up to the front to line up to go downstairs. Warning teachers, I will go long today. I am sorry in advance. <laughs> when we get into the passage, you'll see why. I promise. Also, just kind of to update you, um, they're still meeting kind of on the other end of the building, kind of catty corner to where we are now, but the uh, downstairs, the carpet has finally been ripped up. We had an issue with some sewage a while back, so the carpet's finally uh, been pulled up. We've picked out carpet. I'm not sure if it's on order yet, but I know that that will be happening here very soon. Our hope is to have that back up and running before uh, the new school year. So, but that's not really up to me. <laughs> that's up to the people that are doing the work, so I can't make promises for them. But honestly, well, obviously, this, to state the obvious, Ronnie's not here. He's not in the building right now. Uh, he is in Missouri at a family reunion. Him and Linda took some time to get away, and they obviously brought, not obviously, but they brought a couple grandkids with them uh, to kind of join the party. So, Ronnie had asked me to preach this sermon a few weeks ago, uh, so I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited to preach it, but I will tell you it was a little bit difficult uh, kind of getting this sermon rolling uh, for some obvious reasons that, that you'll kind of see, but one of them is that I wasn't really planning on preaching a sermon in this series, right? It's a topical series. We've been in it. What's love got to do with it, right? I was the one that came up with the idea for the song that Ronnie didn't use, um, so blame him for that one. My hope was every time you would hear that song, you would think about this series, but uh, I, like I said, I wasn't planning on, on, uh, on preaching on it. One of the reasons why is because topical type sermons are not really in my wheelhouse. They're not uh, the most comfortable thing for me, uh, just because they, like, my, my, my deal is I like to be given a passage, to go through that passage, to communicate how that passage has affected me to you, and then to move on. When you get a topical sermon... The problem is not usually to find what to say, it's usually to find what not to say. There's so many things, so many different directions that you can go with it that it becomes difficult to kind of whittle it down to here is the most important thing that you need to gather from this text that we're going to be, on, be in based off of the topic that we're going to be in. And so if you know me, you know I like to talk, and so I reached out to a few people that I know and began to have a couple conversations about this topic. And as I kind of reached out, uh, the, the, the direction became a little bit more clear, uh, but there was an illustration that a friend of mine uh, turned me on to from a guy named uh, Caleb Kaltenbach. He wrote a book called Messy Grace, and he actually preached a sermon over at University Christian Church uh, out of a series that they did called Messy Conversations. This just happened recently, so it's kind of ironic that, a, a, yeah, that, a, that she heard the sermon probably, so she knows, she knows it's good, but... He, uh, he preached a sermon over in, uh, in Manhattan just like this one. They're in a series just like this one, which is kind of crazy to me to think that that community and our community are kind of thinking the same way. We didn't call each other and, and say, hey, we're going to do a series about this. You should too. It just kind of worked out that way. But that, the illustration involved a rubber band. This is a bigger rubber band. And the point that he, he made was that this rubber band by itself is not particularly useful, right? It's not even heavy enough to be a paperweight, right? If the wind came in, it would blow that over immediately. And 
what he ended up saying is that if we're going to engage in difficult conversations, which is our topic for today, engaging in difficult conversations, we need to be willing to live in the tension between grace and truth. That these two things by themselves, when, we, when, it, when we're talking about engaging in difficult conversations, aren't particularly useful. But when we live in the tension between the two, all of a sudden it becomes useful. And the point that he's trying to make is that if we live in too much in the area of grace, we end up a lot like the direction that the world is going right now where truth is relative. What you believe is what you believe. What I believe is what I believe. And that these two paths shouldn't cross necessarily and that there's no underlying truth that girds these things up. The other side of it is truth. If we want a a good example of what a Uh, an example of what somebody just solely living or having conversations in truth looks like, we can look at the Pharisees. You become legalistic, you become ungraceful or graceless, for lack of a better term, and it's easy to miss the point in a conversation. So we need to be willing to live in the tension between these two things in order to have healthy conversations. The tagline that we used to talk about this uh, sermon series and this sermon in particular was we can't be an ostrich, right? Ostriches have a tendency, or not have a tendency, they have a tendency to be depicted with their head in the sand. I legitimately don't know why that is. I probably should have looked into that, but I just thought about that right now that I probably should have looked into that. So it's a little late to the party for that one, but they're typically depicted like this. And we as Christians can't be in this position where we're seeing everything going on in the world or even within these walls and we're not willing to engage in difficult conversations as a result of it. Uh, Caleb also made the point, he said, if, man, if, if living in the tension is a problem for you, it might be time to rethink what faith you're actually following. And he used a couple illustrations I thought were really, really helpful. He said, he said what about the virgin birth or the triune God, but he's one? Or what about Jesus being fully God and fully man, right? Our entire faith is built upon attention, and sometimes we have good answers to these questions, and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. And the same thing is true about engaging in conversation. Sometimes we're going to have all of the answers, and sometimes we're not going to, and that is okay. But we need to be willing to live in the tension. And if you want a good example of what that looks like, turn to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. That is why this sermon is going to take a little bit of while because we have a little bit of digging to do in this story. Uh, This story is very well known. It's the story of the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman. It's one that people like to preach on, people like to talk about, but I'll be honest with you there, as I began to dig into what was going on in this passage, I started to realize that there were things that I had often heard or often seen or often even thought that didn't really have anything to do with this passage or maybe I just misunderstood or just missed completely. But Jesus engages in a difficult conversation with a woman here and the outcome is honestly surprising if you understand what's taking place. And so, as I said, I like expository preaching and so what we're going to do is we're going to open up, if you have your If you have your Bible, if you have your app, open up, look at this passage. We're literally going to walk through this passage. I'm going to kind of teach on on what's going on, and then I'm going to make my points at the end. Typically, I would make my points in the middle of the passage, but because of what's going on, I really want to, and the nature of this sermon, I really want to go through the whole story, and then we'll come back and we'll make some points. 
So starting in verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town called Samaria, called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour or noon. Now, one thing that we have to understand here is that the, the, the English translation doesn't always show exactly what's taking place. And that's going to be a common theme throughout the course of this passage. In verse 4, he says he had to go through Samaria. What we know from history is that Jews did everything they could to avoid Samaria. They, had a, they actually had a path that they would take to go around this region specifically because of the tension that was in Samaria for them. So they would avoid this. So when it says that he had to pass through Samaria, it's not just that he had to pass through there because maybe he was trying to avoid, a ten, avoid tension, but there's definitely some kind of divine appointment that Jesus knew he had to get to. And with how we see this playing out, it makes a lot of sense. But that's not something that we see in the English, and so that's something that we've kind of got to dig for a little bit. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this dates all the way back to their issue with Samaritans dates all the way back to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, when a king came in and invaded the northern part of Israel. And when he did that, he took it over. And when he took it over, he exiled some of them and he brought in people from other regions. They did this as a tactic to keep revolts from happening. They didn't want these people to be able to band together eventually and then, of course, rise up against the king. And so when they did this, they exiled some of these people from this region, some of these Israelites from this region, and they took them to a place, they took them all over the known world at the time. But then also people from all over the known world came into there. And what ended up happening was, is that they intermarried with these people, and the, the religion that they had followed, the, 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 the Jewish faith that they were under, became very, very pagan in its, uh, in its orientation. So much so that they didn't even accept the books of the Bible after, or the books of the Old Testament, the scriptures after the first five books of the Bible. And we'll get into a little bit more of that here in just a second. So there's that tension that's taking place. Jews thought they were half-breeds. They thought that they were, they were an abomination. They thought that, that there was no reason to deal with them again, so much so that they would avoid that region entirely. And there was also some other tensions taking place as we go down through the rest of the story. But also, the other part that's often missed is she said, how are you, a Jew, asking me, a woman, from Samaria for a drink? At this time, no self-respecting man would have talked to a woman in public. They just wouldn't have done it. Women were viewed as property back then. And so, if they were walking down through the city streets, men would walk in front, women would walk behind. And so, women would go to the well in order to be able to... Uh, congregate, be able to talk, be able to, to fellowship if you want to use a, a Christian term. And they would do that in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. They wouldn't be doing that at noon. 
And so that says something about who this woman was or maybe what her background kind of looks like. And so that's, that's an important note to understand is there's two major boundaries that are being crossed here that is often missed if we don't know what's going on. He said to her, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep, about 100 feet to be exact. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, have, he has given us this well to drink from and as he, he has given us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will not be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, and I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, if you haven't caught on by now, she thinks he's talking about actual water. She doesn't think, she doesn't see what's happening here. She doesn't understand the nuances of this conversation because she has no framework for it. She doesn't understand that he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and that when you accept Jesus and this comes into you, it's like a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. When they use the term living water, which is a term that he used, mind you, she would have thought about a creek or a river. She would have thought about flowing water, running water, which is why she reacts the way that she does. But what's funny is, what's often missed, and it's missed by me. Maybe you haven't missed, maybe you read this into it, and maybe I didn't. But when she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, she's not being like necessarily nice about it. She's like, where are you going to get this water from? You literally just asked me for a drink. What water are you talking about? Don't you know who gave us this well and who drank from this well? What water could you give to me that would be better than the water that Jacob gave us? So this this conversation isn't exactly like perfect, mind you. It's difficult. There's tension here. And so Jesus continues to entertain her conversations and finally she asks for the water at the end. She says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Fine, give me this magic water. I don't want to have to come here anymore. I don't like coming here anyways, right? That's kind of how she's answering. So Jesus flips the conversation and asks her a pointed question. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, woman, believe. Now, when he says woman, we, we think of like our modern day use of woman. He's literally like, this is a sign of respect at this time, which again is not something that would be typical for a Jewish man to give to a woman during this time period. We read things into this stuff and it's not really there or we miss things. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's making a statement about her faith. He's saying, listen, you don't even accept all of the, the prophets, the wisdom literature. You don't accept the minor pro- You don't accept any of that. So your understanding of what salvation looks like is very limited. But salvation is from the Jews. The Jews have it right. They understand 
They understand that there is a coming Messiah. And I don't think that she surprises them with this answer because they did have some understanding of the Messiah. But he, you know, he, he says, she says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to you, I who speak to you am he. And he could have dropped the mic and just ended the conversation there. Am I right? But he didn't. He didn't. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Remember what I said earlier? Marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see the man that told me all that I have ever did. Can this be the Christ? What's funny is, did he tell her everything that she had ever done? Like the way that we think about that? No, he did not. <laughs> he told her that she had, some of the things that she had done. And so what, what most commentators say is that she's trying to get these people to come because her reputation is bad. What we know about her so far, that's probably true. Come and see the man that told me all that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they began to come to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought to him something to eat? This conversation is kind of funny because it's a lot like the last one. They think he's talking about real food, but he's not. She thought he's talking about real water, but he's not. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there, that there are, four, there are yet four months to harvest, then comes, four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's talking about wheat harvest. We just, we're kind of getting out of wheat harvest right now, so this should be a, a very vivid image in our mind of those goldenrod, white-capped white fields that are being picked right as we speak. He says, you say this is going to happen in four months. I'm telling you it's hap- getting ready to happen right now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which for you do not, did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what's happening here is obvious, right? She leaves, she goes tell her, tells her people. It's, it's obvious but often missed. She leaves and goes tells her people, hey, you need to go meet this guy. They leave and they start to come. While that is taking place, there's another conversation happening back at the well still where his, his, his people are like, hey, you are weary. You're tired. We've walked 20 to 30 miles. You need to eat. And he's going, we don't have time to eat. People are coming. The harvest is getting ready to happen. If you've ever been around a farmer, where's, where's uh, Megan at? I think she might have had to walk out. She might still be here, but there she is back there. Her husband, her husband is a farmer. If you know anybody that's a farmer, it does seem like they don't eat or sleep, <laughs> right? Because they're constantly out working. Jesus says, the harvest is getting ready to happen. We don't have time for this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What sustains me, what drives me, what pushes me is that. And then he goes into the illustration about the, the labor and the fruit and how, you know, he sends them to get food. They haven't earned that. He just planted these seeds, and these people are getting ready to come back, and they're all going to, to join in in the harvest together. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of, what the woman, because of the woman's testimony. He told me that all that it ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, stay with them, and he stayed with them for two more days. And many more believed because of this, the, his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. One thing that I missed in this passage is that these people would have been viewed as outsiders to the Jews. And so what we have happening here is we have people being included in God's redemptive plan long before the book of Acts. People that no one ever expected to be. Right? These people, although they had some semblance of faith, they were very much on the outside looking in in the Jews' mind. But where does Jesus go? Who does Jesus talk to? Who does Jesus engage purposefully? Who does he stay with for two more days in order to make sure that they get it? What's also kind of ironic is in the chapter before this, he has a conversation in the, in the night with a man named Nicodemus. Guess who got it and guess who didn't? <laughs> Nicodemus didn't know what was going on. Over and over again, he uh, was asking questions like, how, how, how can a man be born of water? And Jesus literally says to him, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand this? These people come and they sit with Jesus for two days and they come to know who he is. And later on, when John, the writer of this book, and Peter preached the gospel in Samaria, many more believe. So what's this matter to us? Why does this matter to us? Right? We're talking about what it means to have difficult conversations. And honestly, I think that this is a great example of a difficult conversation that could have gone very differently, but it didn't. And that's not to say Jesus didn't have conversations that didn't go differently, but this one went a specific way. The first point I want to make to you, and I think it's the most important, and I think it's the most often forgotten, is this. What is your why? If you're going to engage in healthy conversations, if you're going to live in the tension between grace and truth, you need to understand what your why is. This phrase came from my wife in the back. She is part of a hair care company. It's like her third job, right? She's a, she's a rock star. She, uh, she obviously, she's the mother of my kids. She takes care of them. She does hair on the side. She does that two days a week, but then she also sells shampoo. And we've been very blessed by her work. Um, but in, in the beginnings of that business, she was constantly asked, what's your why? What's your why? Why are you doing this? Right? Well, I want to, I want to put groceries on my table. I want to... I want to have a little bit more income. I want to be able to go on trips. I want to be able to uh, eventually retire my husband. I'm still waiting on that one. But this was a, a focused effort to get people to be focused on what it is that they were actually working for. Of course, sometimes this changes and, and it evolves, and sometimes you succeed expectations, and sometimes they're a little bit harder to get to. But we have to be willing to understand and know what our why is is. Jesus had an undeniable focus on what his mission here on earth was, so much so that he avoided certain areas and entered certain areas. He talked to certain people and didn't talk to certain people so that he could accomplish this mission. In verse 34, it says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus gets done talking with this, the, the Samaritan woman and she leaves. And the first thing he, he, that we would want to do is eat. The first thing his disciples want, want to do is eat. But the first thing he wants to do is teach his disciples and make sure they're ready for what's getting ready to happen. Our why at First Christian Church is to foster the family of God. This phrase has implications for believers and non-believers alike. We foster the family with non-believers when we engage in difficult conversations in order to introduce them to Jesus. That is our why. 
This is not optional. Matthew 28 says, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Church, it is easy to see what is happening in the world and to be frustrated by it, but I'm telling you, the fields are white for harvest. Woo. Matthew says that the Matthew 9 says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I see a church full of people. I don't understand why the workers are few. Just like this woman was thirsting for something more, this lost and broken world is thirsting for something more as well. The world they lived in and the world we live in need Jesus. There's a lot of things that they don't need, but they need Jesus. Jesus, uh, so I'm going to ask you again, what is your why? Are you willing to step outside of your comfort zone and reach a world? Are you willing to live in the tension and to remember what our purpose is for engaging in difficult conversations. But it just, it just doesn't apply to, to believers. It also applies to non-believers, but it also applies to, to believers as well. We have a why as to why we engage in difficult conversations with the people in this room, as well as the people in other rooms that are worshiping right now the same way we are. And that is to foster Maturity to push people in a way that causes them to grow and become more like Jesus. Ephesians 4, I wish I could read this whole passage to you, but it would take too long. I've already, I've already said too much. Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Brought down to verse 11, and he gave us the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, which anybody who is, in mat- who is mature in Christ is in that list right there, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of our son, the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer may be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. We engage the world in order to share the gospel, but we engage our brothers and sisters so that we can build each other up. If we had these two, two things in mind, I guarantee you our conversations would go a lot differently. What is your why? These two things are very clear from Scripture that we have a purpose to reach people for Jesus and we have a purpose to build the body up. When we engage in difficult conversations, we have to be willing to put our why first and nothing else. Any of you have those moments where you realize you're more like your dad than you care to admit? I'm crying right now. My dad didn't cry much, but Jared, I know that you've, you've kind of been through that. Mine comes in the course of phrases, right? So, so I tend to say some of the things that my dad said, and when I say them, I have to like pause for a second and breathe. Like, wait a second, did I just say that? I hated when my dad said that, right? 
So one of the ones that he says often to, my, uh, to me and to my sister, because it, it was without fail, and this happens with my boys right now. You know, he would ask me to do something, and I would be like, well, what about what's Devin going to do? What's she going to do? And he'd be like, well, if you would just worry about what you're going to do, you might even already be done by now. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, right? Well, like, you're right, you're right, Dad. So I've had this happen. Without fail, my boys will ask. I'll ask them to empty the dishwasher. Well, what's Lane going to do? Well, son, if you would just worry about what you're going to do, you'd already be done by now. And I'm like, no! Why did I just do that? But if we're going to engage in difficult conversations, we have to know what our why is, but we also have to know our role in the process. This is a simple point that is often forgotten. It is not our job to save anyone. Our job is to be faithful in what God has called us to do. His word and his spirit will do the rest. Jesus, throughout the course of his dialogue with her, introduced her to the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he used a very purposeful illustration to do so. What was it? Living water, specifically. Living water. The Holy Spirit moves even when we don't think that he does. I'm going to use a perfect illustration to, to, to show this. Have you ever driven in the dead of winter over the Smoky River and seen it iced over? You've seen it, right? Or have you ever seen a river iced over? Now, here's my question. Is the water still moving? Yes, it is. Don't try to fall through that and find out. You will die, okay? The same thing can be true, can, is, is, is true about the Holy Spirit. When we do not think that he is moving, he is. It's not our job to worry about that. Our job is to worry about what he has called us to do. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but, the, but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout, kind of another sowing seed illustration, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that be that goes out of my mouth and it shall not, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. Do you believe that the words in, that, in the Bible that you're reading are the actual words of God? If you do, then we got to start acting like it. Because you, do you know what God has done? Do you know what those words have done? They have created the world as we know it. They have parted seas. They have rained down fire from heaven. They have raised dry bones. They have conquered armies and they have calmed the storms. They have raised the dead to life. Oh, I hate this. If the word, can God, if the word of God can do that, then it can take a heart of stone and it can make it flesh. It, it, period. If it can do those things, then it can take somebody who is lost and it can make them found. But are you going to be faithful to share those words? Are you going to be faithful to live in the tension? Are you going to be faithful to put your why first instead of other things? Listen, I love memes. Don't get me wrong. If you don't know what a meme is, it's basically like a picture with words and usually it's, there's a joke associated with it. I love memes. But memes are not how we have discussion. Memes are not how we fight our battles. We do that with the sword of the spirit. We do that with the very words that God has spoken. 
It's easy to get caught up in the ways of the world and to share, share these memes or, or make sure people know what we believe about certain things. But at the end of the day, I want to know what you know about Jesus. And I want to know what other people think about Jesus. That's the conversation that I want to be happy. And man, I hope you guys are wanting to have that conversation too. So we got we to gotta remember what our why is. We have to know our role and we have to be faithful to share what God has asked us to do. But we also have to be willing to get out of the box. It seems so often that the world as we know it, both in the church and out of the church, likes to make things more simple than they really are. I don't know if you know this, but people are incredibly complex. They're incredibly nuanced. There is more to a person than what you see in front of you all of the time. There just is. It's a simple fact. And the same thing is true about this woman. There's a part of this story that I've honestly always assumed, but I never really understood until I dug into it. Verses 16 and 17. He starts to ask her about her husband's, right? He says, I have no, she says, he says, go get your husband. I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You are right in saying, saying that you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And, what, and he says, what you, and she says, what he says, what you, have ha- what you have said is true. This verse is often emphasized as an indictment against the woman, but the truth is we're not really sure why she, doesn't ha- why she has had five husbands. Do you, do you, do you understand that? Deuteronomy 24.1, where the certificate of divorce was given, says if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And he can give it to her and send her away from his house. But this doesn't give us much clarity as to why exactly a woman would be divorced. Now granted, we have some ideas and there's, Jesus teaches on this later. And in fact, if you flip over to Matthew 19, Jesus is asked this question specifically. He says, is it okay to divorce a woman for any reason? Guess what his answer was? No, it's not. Actually, what he started with is, Moses gave you the ability to give a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard. Your hearts were hard. I tell you that if you divorce a woman for any other reason than sexual immorality, you commit adultery. So at this time, in this area, not too far from where he was at, Jesus is answering questions where people are taking advantage of the idea of divorcing a woman for any reason. And Jesus has to set them straight and say, listen, it doesn't work that way. This is never how it was meant to be. When you, were, when you made those promises to your wives, you were supposed to keep those promises. But your hearts were hard. And so we read into this story often, and people read into this story often and act like she, she must have done something to cause this to happen. All five husbands could have died. It could, that could be an answer to this. Now, is he still addressing that something that's not right in her life? Absolutely. Is he addressing her reputation? Absolutely. He absolutely is doing that. But it's easy to, to read into things that aren't necessarily there. Do you see how this truth can apply to having difficult conversations? More often than not, we think about what we're going to say next instead of listening to what the person is actually saying. Right? We try to assume things about people that aren't necessarily true. And I want to make sure that I say this, I am just as guilty of this as, as are most of you. But we have to be willing to do the work to get past this and to have difficult 
conversations. The truth is, Jesus crossed many boundaries by being willing to engage in this conversation. He crossed social boundaries by talking to a woman in public. He crossed ethical, ethnic and political boundaries by going to a region and sharing the gospel or sharing, I guess, his messiahship with, uh, with a group of people that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. They, thought they, they, thought, they would have thought that this is egregious. This would have got him killed, honestly. I mean, it eventually did, but we have the opportunity to not be like the world, and we have the opportunity to cross boundaries, break down boxes each and every day, whether it is on social media, at work, in school, in your homes, you have the opportunity to engage in conversations that can have an eternal impact on somebody's future. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is 1 Corinthians 9. I wanted to use this passage, but there's some contextual things that kind of make it a problem, but I think there's some truth in here that are really good. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like those under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like the one not having the law, though I am free from God's law, but I am still under Christ's law, so to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. What is your why? Are you willing to cross boundaries or are you looking to stay in your box? Are you willing to not assume and ask the next question or are you really even interested in having conversations at all? We also have to understand that this truth goes for people in the church as well. If people are incredibly complex outside of these walls, they are incredibly complex within them. All of us have different stories, different situations, different people that we encounter or engage with each and every day. That is just a simple fact of life. We cannot let this place be a place where people are not willing to ask questions or to work through difficult conversations or concepts. One author I, I, I was reading said, doubt is not the worst thing in the world, but unexpressed doubt is pretty bad. Are we a place where people feel safe to be working through their questions and their concerns? Are we willing to let the word of God speak for itself, his spirit fall upon people, and, be, and to be faithful to have these conversations? Jesus did not shy away from the difficult conversations. He lived in the tension. And the last thing, the last point I want to make before I kind of wrap this up is this, that conversations, conversation is hard. There's a lot that I could say here. There's so much that I could say here, but conversations are hard. I remember a few years ago, I started to make a conscious effort at actually like engaging in conversations and not just thinking about what I was going to say next. And I'll be honest with you, my first thought was this is exhausting. This is exhausting. It is exhausting to not assume to fight my own prejudice or my own assumptions about what is being said or what could be being said or where a person is coming from and to be willing to ask the next question. It's so easy to fall in the trap of assuming where we, to know that we're, we're to assume. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we know where people are coming from when things really aren't as they seem. 
I have read this passage in particular hundreds of times, and I thought that I had a good understanding of it until I actually dug into it. And although some of the truths still rang true, there were plenty of things that I dug out of it that I never knew were there. Let's be honest. Jesus could have shut down this conversation in a second and smited her off the face of the planet, but he didn't. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count as slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus was patient in this conversation. How are you doing with patience? The art of conversation has been lost in the world today, and it probably has a lot to do with the fact that we are lazy and a little bit comfortable. It is easy to shut down the conversation with a meme or dehumanizing comment or avoid it altogether. But we are not called to be like the world, though. We are called to be like Jesus. Did he shy away from the truth of her reputation? No, he did not. But did he, did he smear it in her face as something to be wielded like a weapon? No, he did not. He addressed her current situation throughout the entire conversation, but it was dripping with grace. Grace and truth. Last school year, before stuff went off the deep end, for lack of a better phrase, the high school students began some conversations about some difficult topics. We handled things like homosexuality and even capitalism and social, socialism and what the Bible has to say about these things. But to start off the year, we didn't start with a difficult conversation, although it was more difficult than I thought it would be. We started off about talking about what it would look like to have a difficult conversation. We talked about empathy, and we talked about grace, and we even talked about truth. And I don't know if you remember this, but at the high school, there was a situation taking place where a girl was asked to take her hijab off at school. If you don't know what a hijab is, it's a, it's a headdress that a Muslim uh, woman will wear in public. And there was lots of people that were fired up about this, and I understand why. And the kids were fired up about it. And so as they were kind of dialoguing about this and how this shouldn't have happened and all of this, and if I wore a cross or I wore my Christian or if I had my Bible or this or that, you know, I, I just stopped him and I asked him a question. Can you understand why the hall monitor, or what, or actually I, I asked it this way, what would be the reason that the hall monitor and the principal reacted the way that they did? That seems like a simple question, but man, so often trying to empathize with where somebody is coming from is harder than you think. And we kind of went around, a couple people shared some things, and there was one person in particular that, I'm not going to entertain this, 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 this question because then we're just excusing what, what they did. Who said we're excusing anything, is what I said. I said, I just want to know if you're willing to understand where the other person is coming from. See, unlike Jesus, we can't read people's minds and hearts. But we can do the best job we can. We, we, but we can do the best job we can in trying to understand where they're coming from. Why? So that we can reach them for Jesus, or so that we can build them up to maturity. The world is littered with this approach to not trying to empathize or not trying to understand, and I just don't see why the church has to adopt this as well. Again, we are not called to be like the world. We are called to live in the tension. As I kind of wrap this up, I struggled with how to conclude this sermon. I really did. Because there's so much that I could say, but not everything, that I, not everything is needed to be said. And so I wanted to leave you with a challenge 
But, but well, I wanted to leave you with a challenge. I was talking with Travis Roberts one day, and we were talking about dialoguing about why athletes tend to blow all their money like within a, so many years, you know, or why they tend to try to take a, a helmet and beat the living daylights out of someone else with it on the football field while national television. And we were dialoguing about this, and he said, well, it, it's easy. He said, these athletes, they focus so much on their craft, right? They put all this effort into being better at, at kicking a football or throwing a football or playing basketball or whatever the case may be, better, being better at dance. And so when they make it to the highest level, they've spent all this time working on their craft, but they've spent no time working on their maturity. See, maturity is like a discipline. If you don't work on it, you don't mature, right? It just doesn't happen. The same thing is true about conversation. If you don't practice having conversations, you will not be good at it, especially difficult ones. This isn't something you just jump into the deep end and, and see what happens, right? So parents, grandparents, I wanna challenge you with this. Engage in difficult conversations with your kids because if you don't, I promise you the world will. Hold on. I was talking with a, uh, a teacher about this in particular. Do you understand that your kid's mind from 7 to 11 starts to develop logical thinking, but from 12 and on, even into their adulthood, they start to understand what abstract thinking is? If you don't understand what that means, it's like the nuances of a conversation are lost to kids that are honestly 12 through high school. Like, let's be real. And so when they hear us frustrated or saying things about Black Lives Matter, for instance. They don't understand the nuances of that conversation. It's your job to talk to them about what the issue is and to make them understand that at the end of the day, all people have the image of God ingrained within them. And so, of course, black lives do matter. That's not to say that we stand for all of the things that that organization might associate themselves with, but at the end of the day, people matter. And we have to be willing to engage in those conversations. Just recently, I had a conversation with my eight-year-old about the birds and the bees. I felt like I was a little late to the party, and honestly, I'm right on the cusp of it. If you have not talked to your kids about God's design for sex, you need to do it. Because if you don't, someone else will. You just, you got, you got to do it. And the truth is, it's an easy place to practice living in the tension. Because those conversations are not always easy. They don't always go the way that you want them to. You have to exercise patience and love and grace and understanding. You have to allow them to ask questions the same way we need to allow each other to ask questions. For the rest of you that might not have kids in your home, maybe evaluate what your social media looks like. The next time you ask that post, is this accomplishing my why? Maybe the next time you engage with that coworker at work, instead of being so quick to speak, maybe stop and listen a little bit. Engage in the tension. Work on the craft of having conversation. Because at the end of the day, you can have an eternal impact on somebody through one simple conversation. Do you, have I ever told you exactly how, you guys remember Kevin? Hopefully you haven't forgot him by now. How I got, how Kevin came to know Jesus was because we started talking about politics. And I said to him, I said, how, how do we know what's right or wrong? 
And that led into a conversation about who determines what is right and wrong and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Kevin's a youth pastor now. You can have that same impact with somebody while you're at school or you're at work or you're online even. Like, guys, I hate social media, but it's not going anywhere. And if we're going to interact on there, then at least let's be like Jesus when doing it. All right? Let me pray real quick, and then I'm going to have Eric come up. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I thank you so much for the word that's, words that you laid on my heart. Lord, I ask that the teachers downstairs would forgive me for going for way too long. But Lord, I just ask that, man, we would be willing to engage in difficult conversations like Jesus was. We would stop assuming, we'd start asking questions, and we'd put our why first, and we'd understand what our role is in the process. Lord, that we would lean into your word and your spirit to save people, and Lord, we would just be faithful in following you. Lord, I thank you so much, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.